0: Hi everybody, it's Jonah Pallone, and welcome to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. Listen, when I was growing up, most people just told me to follow the normal path and get a job at a big company with quote unquote job security. Eventually, I woke up and I pursued business going to UNC Keenan-Flagler for undergrad. It was a great experience, but almost everything I was taught in the business school centered around big business and startups. During college, I was fortunate enough to land a position where I get to be around small business owners every day. I get an inside look at how they make tough decisions. With owner operated, I want to let you in behind the curtain. Listen, my entire life I've heard people give business owners a bad rap. Since I've gotten involved in helping business owners sell their companies at Midstreet, I've learned that most often the opposite is true. I'm on a mission to get the word out that small business ownership is a good thing, but don't get it twisted. I'm going to share the good, the bad, and the ugly, a lot of emotions, a lot of hard work, and just what makes these businesses so special, the people behind them. Join me on my journey into the world of small business ownership. And if you enjoy the podcast, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you like. Today, I sat down with Scott Maitland, founder and owner of Top of the Hill Restaurant and Brewery. Scott's also an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at UNC Chapel Hill, my alma mater. So this is a very special episode for me. I've been to Topo, which is the nickname we call it in Chapel Hill, many, many times with friends. It's a legendary restaurant in Chapel Hill, and being able to talk with Scott about entrepreneurship, um, the restaurant, business ownership, principles he follows to lead and manage a successful restaurant and brewery in general, and another topic I've been meaning to ask him about for a while now we cover in this episode this concept of unicorn entrepreneurship versus the old school style of entrepreneurship. You know, this is something I'm super interested in because I went to a a university and and many colleges throughout the states right now are are pushing this narrative of startup culture and teaching students how to raise money and and do VC funds. And while Scott did raise money for his venture, he runs an old school style of business and he encourages others to do so. So this is something I'm passionate about personally. We think small business is underappreciated. And so I really wanted to highlight that on this episode. I think we did a good job of that. So thanks so much for listening and enjoy. All right, Scott, thanks so much for being on the show with me today. I really appreciate you being here. Hey, it's a pleasure. All righty. So uh, tell, first of all, tell the audience you know, who you are and just give a bit of background on your story.
1: Sure. My name is Scott Maitland. Uh, I'm originally from uh, Whittier, California, which is East Los Angeles, and went to West Point for undergraduate, was in the Army, served in the first Gulf War, got out of the Army with the firm conviction never to let somebody stupider than me be in charge of me again, got the advice if I was serious about being a small business person, go to law school, Was lucky enough to end up here at at Carolina Law. um, uh, And uh, in my second year of law school, came up with the idea for Top of the Hill Restaurant and Brewery and uh, was able to get it opened in 1996. And we are the fifth oldest brew
0: pub in the state of North Carolina. Wow. Okay. That's clearly the elevator pitch. (laughs) (laughs) So so tell me some more about your story. I mean, when you were growing up as a kid, um, was your family in the military? No, no, not at all. No, my dad was a... um, a repo
1: man for, um, United California bank. And my mom managed some uh, sales stuff for McKesson chemical. Got it. And so what, what drove you to, to join the military, go to West Point, honestly, to get the heck out of, uh, uh, you know, Southern California and, and in a sense, Southern California is a great place to live. If you got a lot of money, not necessarily the greatest place to live if you don't. And, uh, my prospects were, were somewhat limited and to have the and and truly this is one of the great mysteries of my life, but the opportunity to go to West Point was not proactively secured by me. It fell into my lap and I just am glad I had the wisdom to take that opportunity and run with it and uh, obviously put my life on an entirely different trajectory.
0: Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And so tell the people about um, Top of the Hill and kind of what, obviously if you're from Chapel Hill or if you've been to Kenyon Flagler or UNC, you understand what it is, but for the person who's outside listening in, you know, what is Top of the Hill?
1: Right. So. Um, going back to this idea of the scholarship I got for from the law school, uh, it was interesting because I had been eighty um, percent um, of law students go to law school directly out of undergrad, and I didn't fit that category. I had obviously been in the army, been in a war, and then I actually was Ross Perot's campaign manager for the state of Florida in the ninety-two election. Mm-hmm. So I had a bunch of experiences, even though I, I was only four or five years older than most of my classmates. Um, But I show up in law school and I I had the scholarship and it was fantastic. And one of the great things about the scholarship was that I um, got a position with the dean as part of the scholarship. And so I spent a lot of time with um, the the faculty and the staff because of that position. Uh, I spent a lot of time with the folks that went straight out from undergrad into law school because... Because uh, I, I, the last group is sort of the second career folks, and while I had a lot in common with them professionally, uh, I you know it, I didn't have a family. I didn't really fit in with that group, and although I didn't really fit in with the straight from undergrad folks either, that was the group I, I kind of hung out with the most. The point though is is I would go into Chapel Hill, and I realized that these very three different groups: the the, the faculty and staff, the uh, second careers, and the undergrad professional school st- folks, there was no place that they would ever meet up in Chapel Hill. There were like different bars and places that they would go to. And that really kind of drove my recognition that, that Chapel Hill needed a place where people from all facets could come together and actually see each other. And, and about that same time, uh, they were building the building that's 10 yards off of campus at, at the corner of Main and Main, which in Chapel Hill is Franklin Street in Columbia. And they announced they were going to put a TGI Fridays there. And one of the reasons why I wanted to leave Southern California was I saw Southern California just kind of paved over and strip malls put everywhere. And no offense to the chain restaurants. And I've actually grown to have more respect for them over my last 25 years. But I didn't want to see a chain restaurant dominate downtown Chapel Hill. And so despite having no money, no experience, um, I geared my third year of law school around it. And was able to raise the money and make it happen.
0: Now, uh, you know, one question I have for you, you go to law school, it's obviously not a cheap path to take, you know, going through all that education. At the end of that, you decide to open Tabo. Was part of you like, gosh, I just spent all this money on this education to study and and be able to practice law, and now I'm opening up a restaurant and and distillery like... Well, two things. First of all, I went to law school to be a small business person. Now, clearly,
1: I thought that perhaps opening a law firm would be one of the businesses that I would create. But secondly, yeah, I had a full scholarship. And so, uh, you know, honestly, I came from a, uh, um, you know, I came from a background, it still amazes me, I I didn't pay a dime to get all the way through law school. I mean, I got a full scholarship to go to West Point, obviously, and then at at law school I got a full scholarship as well. I will tell you that the person that gave me my scholarship in law school uh, was not too particularly thrilled to find out that I was starting. Pursuing uh, a different path. Yeah, Yeah. and um, uh, that was Chancellor Taylor, former chancellor of the university, and uh, uh, he called me in when he found out what I was doing, and he literally... uh, closed the door and, and I had never had a meeting with him before. And he said, what, why in the hell did I waste the scholarship on you? <laughs> and, uh, to be fair to him though, a couple of years later, he came to lunch with, uh, a Ken Brown, former mayor and my small section professor in law school. And Dick Bedore, who was the athletic director, and uh, I had lunch with the three of those gentlemen. And Chancellor Taylor said, "You know, you did well." So, so anyways, um,
0: years at, years later, you got your redemption.
1: Yeah, but I think that the freedom of having that full scholarship is what allowed me the opportunity to to do it. That that uh, you know, I had the opportunity to go to Yale and thought that I would originally do that. And my godfather um, is the guy that gave me the advice. Said, you know. Um, you go to Yale, yes, you can get any job in the world, but you're going to have a debt and it's going to limit you to what jobs you can actually take. If you go to Carolina, yeah, it's the 20th law school in the country instead of number one, but you'll have no debt, so you'll be able to do anything you want to do. And it was the best advice I ever got. So,
0: Wow. And you know, part of it for me, too, just kind of an interesting question, is like, when you graduated law school, did... I mean, I'm sure, like, especially with law school, a lot of these folks went to different parts of the country, whereas you stayed in Chapel Hill and sort of kind of buckled down here. Was there a bit of an awkwardness there, where like all your kind of maybe some of your buddies were leaving and you were just staying in Chapel Hill? Did you kind of ever second guess that, or did you always know this is going to? Not be at,
1: all. at all. Yeah. So, so, so it's really interesting. You're you're asking some of the the, the very um, important philosophical and basic questions that nobody ever asks. And so the reality is, is that in the second semester of my second year in law school i became very depressed because i realized i did not want to be an attorney and practice law in the sense that it was done and uh i originally thought that i wanted to go to atlanta what i was looking for was southern california as described by my grandparents in the 50s and I had it in my head that Atlanta would be that place. And so, unfortunately, I figured out by that time, by, by you know, early 94, I realized that it, Atlanta 1994 was just like Southern California in the late 70s, and I didn't want anything to do with it. And so I was very depressed, didn't know where I wanted to, to live, and didn't know what I wanted to do. And I decided that I was going to decide on where I wanted to live first. And literally that year, that, you know, three or four weeks later, Inc. Magazine, Is it ink or money? Money magazine came out with the triangle as being the number one place to live in America. And I said, you know what? Why? I love it here. Why would I move? And so I made the decision to stay here in Chapel Hill and then said, I'll figure out what I'm going to do. And then came the idea of top of the hill and all that stuff. So so no, and it was never awkward. Uh, living in Chapel Hill is freaking awesome and and you know, the only feedback I ever get is damn, I wish I'd done the same thing. So it's great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so uh, just to kind of further this up too for people listening, Top of the Hill is a restaurant. It's a bar. It's a distillery. What else is I missing? Something I'm sure. Event space. Event space. So, so,
1: top of the hill restaurant, brewery, event space, a second bar called the Back Bar. And then in 2010, we started the distillery we the
0: first organic distillery in the south and so it's sort of this iconic um if you've ever seen a photo of franklin street when people rush franklin after the basketball team gets a major win over duke or wins the, ch- the national championship top of the hill is always in that photo with the blue lights coming out of it. it's the restaurant on the top um just for kind of people listening but well so- and, and and to be fair, there's a funny story about that
1: yeah uh, when we started top of the hill there weren't a lot of cause for street celebrations um because basketball was going through, it was the end of the Dean Smith era and whatever. So we didn't have any cause for celebrations. But I wanna say it was 98. And, and I'm gonna have to go look back and make sure, you know, but I think it was 98. Um, I know it was either 97 or 98, but I think it was 98 that we beat Duke. And there was this huge party. And everybody congregated underneath Top of the Hill, like the pictures that you're talking about now. That I remember an old cop standing there on the balcony with me and he said you know you should be complimented and I said why is that he goes well it used to be people would gather down the street down by what's now CVS like the Carolina coffee shop He goes, you have moved the entire center of the street party and I I truly look at that and I said that's I know this sounds goofy, but I I look at that as one of my greatest accomplishments ever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's awesome. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah, you did. I. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, we when we won it um, my freshman year, twenty seventeen. Uh huh. That was it, it. Was the craziest experience ever. If you've never been to Chapel Hill to experience that, you have to you have to try it out sometime. Yeah. Although I guess you know you got to be a student really. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, very cool. So so, just getting back to kind of the theme of this podcast, right? This is called owner operated, and what it really is, is for folks who are looking into small business as a career, as a path, kind of curious about it, small business owners looking from, you know, to learn from other small business owners. Um, So we're going to get into the lessons, but just to kind of start off with your, you know, some of the stories about you getting into the business. I think it's so fascinating. You started TAPO when you were in law school, right? Yes. Walk me through balancing those two behemoths, right? Sure. Well, first of all, we talk about balance in life all the time.
1: Um, But I take the position that life doesn't reward balance monetarily. Right? Life rewards balance emotionally and and all these other important ways and especially coming out of covid, you know, I've had some real thoughts about that. But but if you're talking about business and you're talking about creating something or you're talking about, you know, you know, it's it's imbalance that gets rewarded. And so you know, I didn't have a family, I didn't have kids, right? And I was able to gear all of my law school experiences around starting top of the hill. So I took partnership tax and I took negotiations and I, you know, I really, I geared my academic content around the idea of starting up a business, which was fantastic. Um, and ironically, or, or not necessarily ironically, but very interestingly, uh, LLCs, limited liability companies were actually authorized in North Carolina that second semester of um, uh, my law school and so I was able to truly be cutting edge with the idea of incorporating an LLC as a small business uh, and we were the very first LLC in the state of North Carolina to do a registered offering and uh, and so you know we were kind of groundbreaking in that Regard as well. So, in any event, I think that harmonizing those two together and then just frankly working my rear end off.
0: Walk me practically through it. I mean, so you have this idea to start a restaurant, a bar. Did you have the distillery at that time? Or was no, that, no, 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 no. The distillery
1: later. didn't come until 2010.
0: Okay. So, practically speaking, right, you're, you're going through your law school courses, you're studying. What, what's your first step? Well, so what I needed to do was I needed to raise
1: money, right? And so, in order to raise money, I needed to create a team. And so, I realized that I needed to have somebody, um, you know, that had knowledge of the brewing industry and I needed to have somebody that had knowledge of the restaurant industry. And uh, one of the things I think is really fascinating, one of the things I tell my students in my entrepreneurship class is to be really thoughtful about who you make as partners uh, because the skill sets you need might be very, very different than the skill sets you sell to potential investors. So, for example, um, on the beer side, the partner that I got, um, so, so, and if you really want to get granular, here's what happened. I went to the only coffee shop on, in Chapel Hill at the time, which, um, is located where, um, uh, what's the burger shop that's on Columbia street. You know what I'm talking about? Um,
0: um you know, what I'm know talking what talking about, about. right. Yeah. Um,
1: and so Next there was the a sushi spot. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so that was owned by, um, a town, um, council person and I'm um, there supposedly studying law. But instead, I'm, I'm reading this thing that you young people may not know about, but it was called a magazine. <laughs> and so I'm reading a magazine and it's Newsweek and they have a story about um, Starbucks, right? And they're talking about um, how this upstart coffee company with 500 outlets. So think about how long ago this is in the Starbucks world. You know, is it going to succeed? Is this going to work? And, and, and this leads to the idea of gentrification of food. And there was this little article within the article talking about precisely that. Like, we've seen other foods get gentrified. And so they started it off, believe it or not, with Mrs. Fields cookies, right? Taking a, a humble chop, chocolate chip cookie and turning it into something you paid a dollar for in the mall. Then they talked about Ben and Jerry's and Haagen-Dazs ice cream. Then you had coffee. And they're like, what's the next thing? And it mentioned craft beer, right? And so that's kind of where I realized, oh my gosh. And so I went home and and they'd already announced they were going to put a TGI Fridays there. And I was really bummed out by that. And so I went home that night and again, it's 1994. So I had access to LexisNexis. So, so the, the advantage I had was, I mean, the idea of people signing online in 94 was, you know, almost nonexistent, right? I think AOL had just come out. I guess AOL had come out in 92, something like that. Um, So in any event, the point is having access to research material, pre-Google, all this kind of stuff was unbelievable. And I asked LexisNexis to give me every newspaper article written for the last five years that mentioned brew pub, microbrewery, craft beer, et cetera. And because that industry was so new, I basically got to see the entire birth of an entire industry. And it was 780 articles, and I sat up all night and read all of them. And I had a legal pad, and I was just taking notes. And one of the last stories was a story talking about how Daniel Bradford, publisher of All About Beer magazine, moved the headquarters of the magazine from Boulder, Colorado, to Durham, North Carolina. And I made a note. I said, I'm going to call this guy. I went to bed at 6 in the morning. I woke up at 9. I called him. I had a lunch with him that day in, um, uh, Torito's Mexican restaurant there at Brightleaf square. I think it's Torito's. Um, and, uh, you know, he says that people have been coming to him about starting a, a brew pub with him or whatever, but they didn't know anything. And he assumed it would be the same thing with me, especially when I showed up and I was relatively young, but I had just read everything. And so like he mentioned something like, he's like, yeah, well, you know, you should think about doing, um, you know, like a mug club. I know a guy that's doing a mug club in Colorado and I'm like, oh, you mean Steve Dimmer? And he's like, yeah, Steve Dimmer. And I'm like, oh yeah, the mug club, but you know, here's the problem with that. And you know, all this kind of yeah. stuff. Right. And so the point was, that I did have a, um, a resource, uh, uh, educational access that other people didn't have. And so, uh, that really helped me. And so the point though, was, is that What is Daniel Bradford? Well, he's not a brewer. He's a magazine publisher. But the real value to him, to the organization, was he knew everybody in the industry. So when we needed to talk about equipment, well, he knew who to talk to. When we needed to find a brewer, he knew who to talk to, et cetera. And that was a heck of a lot more important than me having found you know a guy that was brewing beer in his in his garage and wanted to make the step up to being a brewer, right? And so, so again, I think the way to look at it is he was the tip of an information network surrounding what seemed then to be an exotic industry called craft beer, right? Um, you know, I found a restaurateur from New York through my high school buddy. My high school buddy was my first partner, um, and I tell people be careful what you do. And to all credit to my high school buddy, Top of the Hill would not have happened without him. But his role was much more sort of being my emotional support as I did law school and did this on the side. Um, And he had sort of misrepresented some skill sets to me. He was showing me a business that his girlfriend started claiming that he had created all these systems. And I was very excited about having somebody that had done that. Turns out that his very smart MBA girlfriend had set all this up and he was like a trained monkey pushing Alt five to make a form letter. Dan, if you hear that, you know, that's the truth. (laughs) And so in any event, but he, um, you know, he was important and, and we had fun doing it together but he just didn't have the skill set to to keep it going and so ultimately we parted ways and then uh, you know but through him uh, his Dan's most significant contribution was he was the only one between the two of us that knew any kind of restaurant tour at all and so we were able to get a restaurant tour from New York that came down and and was part of our uh, uh, project as well and so that really kind of helped it and then obviously once you have that team you know you then start raising money and uh and having a team kind of helped me do that so um i ended up talking making my pitch 384 times um wow and uh the deal evolved uh many times uh but ultimately yeah and so you know you think about the cost of raising capital it's such a small thing off air prior to this you and i were talking about scale and you know obviously scale has so many advantages it's got some disadvantages as you and i were discussing but this is definitely one of the advantages especially back in 94, raising money, large amounts or small amount, had hard fixed costs that you couldn't escape. So, you know, raising a hundred million dollars was basically the same cost of raising 1.2 million. Right. And so, you know, that was an expensive, hard time. And I survived by, you know, working for $6 an hour, um, you know, filing paperwork. And, uh, I ran a fundraiser and, and, uh, we did a haunted house and you could pay five bucks so you could pay two bucks with two cans of food and the food shelter rejected the food because it had gotten the labels had gotten scratched or whatever so I ate canned food that the food shelter rejected (laughs) you know I mean all of that so it's there was some lean times but uh, I look back at it and frankly those are some of my favorite times
0: that's yeah. And those stories are exactly what we're looking for because it's, it's stuff like that, that I think the average person really doesn't understand what it takes to get to where you are today, right? There, right now they see, and I, it's just a common theme in this podcast. People see you as you are right now. That's they right. see, they see Topo and what year are you right now? How, how many years? 24 years, 24 years. So well, and for me, I've been working on 26 years, 26 right? years. So it's 20, you're 26, oh, actually 27 oh. years now. Jeez, I'm getting old, man. <laughs> right? So you're, you know, 25 years in or so. And people see that, but they don't see the year four. No, that's
1: right, right. Yeah, oh yeah. You know. And and you know, I'd be a rich man if I got a dime every time somebody said, "You know, we should start a restaurant. Every Friday I come out and they're all packed." Well, no kidding. That's when people go out to a restaurant. If, if, so here's a piece of advice everybody. If you want to see how a restaurant is doing, go out on a Tuesday or a Monday. You know, then you're going to realize, "Oh, wait a minute, you know, because yeah, there's there's basically this magic 8 hours a week where a restaurant can really be packed and make a lot of money. The question is, what are you doing the rest of the time? Right. And people just don't see that. And people think that your job is walking around buying people drinks. And, and, uh, uh, although that is part of my job now, the idea that that is only my job, that's crazy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and you put your, you also put your 25 years in. So the the way you operate now is probably quite a bit different than how year four looked. Of course. (laughs) right. Um, so you mentioned partnership and you mentioned kind of finding people who are nodes and just know a lot of people. This is something that's fascinating to me uh, because you seem like one of those guys who who at this stage in your life, you know, you're sort of this influential Chapel Hill businessman who who knows all these people. How important was it to find folks? And also practically speaking, how did you find folks who knew, you know, this restaurant tour type of guy, right? How how did you find that? And, and, And what would you recommend to somebody who was trying to expand their network and because that's really, it seems to me, that's really where the opportunities come in, especially for someone like you. you I mean, might not be extremely analytical, might not be like the presenter or whatever. You're somewhere in the middle of this continuum, but you, you leverage the advice and skills of other people, right, as, as a business owner.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, and I don't think I've ever said this before to anybody, but being very frank, I'm lucky I, I am able to play a lot of different roles in that regard. And, and the, the law school background, the leadership opportunities in the Army, you know these things um i think prepared me for um the number one thing you have to do when you're starting a business which is sell and people think that you know oh that means you got to sell your roofing tile or your hamburger or whatever it is what you need to sell is the vision and what it is that you're creating and so the ability to paint that picture tell that story sell that story is and 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 sell it in a credible way that's the key so i think that a lot of the challenges i had in the beginning was people didn't believe and and i hope this isn't a weird back bay of what you want to talk about but one of the things i really realized was as i was raising money um i networked through the west point community and i also networked through the chapel hill community right and what i realized the difference was was in the west point community you know, we take an honor, we have an honor code. Don't lie, cheat, or steal. And, and, and obviously, there was a, if you don't know, there was a cheating scandal this past year. And people make a big deal as if if West Point is somehow failing. I would say, well, no, that's the key. They figured out there was a cheating scandal and we are taking corrective steps. That doesn't happen in other institutions. The idea of cheating just is like, oh, well, right? And so the point is, is that if you're a graduate, we, we take that very, very importantly, and, and so what I noticed was was that the West Point alumni, when I made a pitch to them, you know, go up, make the pitch, I got an answer within 24 hours. Yes or no. It wasn't always yes. I mean, I think only one third was yes, but yes or no, I got an answer within 24 hours. Whereas if I made a pitch to non-West Point community members, uh, it would require six, seven meetings. And I finally realized, oh, the issue here is trust. Is this person reliable? Is this person someone I can trust? And the way the non-West Point folks were trying to establish that ability is that they would make me go to a series of different meetings and did I show up on time, was I ready, did I treat people with respect, did I know, you know, all of these little tests that they were coming up with. And so... um, I think that that's a fascinating thing and it really informed how I raised the money because then I realized, well, the people are concerned about the idea of burn rate, right? So you've got this, and especially in the 90s, you had companies that were starting up and they were burning money through faster than they were raising it, right? And so I realized that and what I did was I created a trust account and I said, look, your, your money when you give it to me will go into the trust account administered by the banker who's giving me my SBA loan right? And I will only have access to that money when I've raised enough money to qualify for the SBA loan. And so suddenly then the idea that, you know, I'm going to be the last 10 or the last 20 or whatever, that kind of goes away because people aren't concerned about you doing this. And it, and it really hit on the head, the unstated objection, which was how can I trust you? Right? And so that's the thing that I would say to you is that first of all, no one's ever going to say, I don't trust you but you need to realize that's an issue. And so all of your life needs to be lived in a way that people are going to feel that way. But you can set up the mechanism for your fundraising in a way that there are guardrails so you can show them, look, I'm only gonna have access to this unless I meet my other goals, right? So I think that that's a big thing and I think that that's how I was able to do it. But as it was, it still took a lot of time and a lot of effort to actually raise that money. With respect to the idea of networking, I think people get the wrong idea about networking. They think that the fact that you met somebody and said hello is enough. And no, at least in my experience, you know, you need to interact with them in an authentic way. And what you need to be thinking about is you need to be thinking about building relationships, you know, irrespective of whatever business goal that you're doing that, that I find now that I'm the person that people are trying to, you know, network with, which still blows my mind and we can get into that, but, <laughs> but the point is, yeah. is that you can see the person that's interested in me as a person versus the person that's interested in me in terms of my access or resources. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that there's a, a big difference there. And so I think that that authenticity and, 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 and being even authentic saying, well, you know, I, you know, I, it's all, I, it's, it's okay to be authentic and say, this is what I want to achieve. And I was hoping you and I could have a conversation because I think you could help me do this. But the idea that like, oh, I met this guy and that's enough to carry the day. No, that's not, that's not what it takes. And, and so, uh, you know, volunteering, uh, taking leadership positions, establishing a track record of, of leadership, no matter what's going on. And, and that's, as an aside, I get a lot of veterans coming to me and saying, you know, I'm a veteran and, you know, getting out, I'm transitioning out of the service and I don't have the skill set necessary to be a business person. And my response is, bullshit. This is, what what is small business? Small business is taking a team of people and solving a problem. What is military leadership? Taking a team of people and solving a problem. And early in my career, I was told by that tour guy I was telling you about that I couldn't run my business like I led a company in the army. And I bought into that. And you know what? Those were the darkest days of top of the hill and facing going out of business and and stuff that, you you know, again, no one ever thinks about now that they look at it. I said to myself, you know, I'm going to run this the way um, I would run a company in the army. And the first thing I said was, you don't lie, cheat or steal. We don't tolerate those who do. And I fired people on the spot when I found out that they had been lying or cheating, taking tips, doing whatever, got rid of those people. And the result of that was the other people realized, hey, this is great that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm working in an organization
0: where that's not going to be tolerated. Absolutely. And, and one thing, too, that I was just kind of thinking of as you were talking about all this, you finished law school and you started Top of the Hill. But you didn't take any jobs after that, so you were in the military after after undergrad. Yeah, so right? so I graduated from West Point in eighty eight, and I served in the military until the end of ninety one. And in that process, was in the first Gulf War. Okay, right? and, and so you started Topo, and you were at the law school around the same time. You decided to do that rather than take kind of the traditional maybe. Oh, hundred percent. Did you always know that? I mean, your parents weren't business owners, right? No,
1: I mean, no, no, no. But but you know, my father. Um, uh, would come home almost every day with a new business idea and would want to kind of think through it. And at the time, of course, as a child, you don't understand. But in retrospect, as I got older, I realized that my father was just very unhappy in the job that he had, but felt for lots of reasons that he didn't have the opportunity to do it. I mean, he had kids and, you know, family and all that stuff. So, so, um, my father then got let go at 19 years and eight months so they wouldn't have to pay his health insurance after he hit the 20-year mark that type of thing and I remember thinking and then this was it's weird but that 81-82 recession gets lost in history but it really hit California pretty hard and so one of the things I tell my students that I taught here, you know, it's like uh, the ones at least that went through the Great Recession, I'm like, you and I have something in common. This recession thing happens and it can be difficult. Um, and But anyways, it really, at that time, I think large corporations were sort of how, you know, you you graduated and you went to work for a large corporation. And, and, and I think that that was the beginning of the fraying of that promise. Um, and whether that was right or wrong, whatever. But... Uh, I saw my father get kind of screwed, and I realized that I didn't want to have that happen to me. That that win or lose, I wanted to be able to live or die by my decisions, not somebody else. And so, I think there was always this independent streak in me in that regard. Uh, plus, I want to get the hell out of my own house. You know, my my father and I didn't get along well, and so I think that there was a uh, an independent street there. And so, you know, I think that that concept of, of, you know, what what drives you to start your own business, you know, I think the people to say, well, I'm going to start my own business going to make a lot of money. Uh, I find that to be a very specious and, and, and oftentimes reason that, that loses its luster very quickly. What I find is people, um, wanting to have the independence, not having to go through bureaucracy or whatever doesn't make it any easier and by no means are you the boss because ultimately the boss are the customers that come to top of the hill, right? Um, So, but that idea though that you get to shape your own reality, you get to shape what's happening, that to me is the
0: driving force. I mean, good, bad or otherwise, I did it. Yeah. And you teach at the, um, you're, you're an adjunct professor at UNC. I'm a professor of the practice. Professor of the practice. practice. we, we you gussied
1: that term up. <laughs> yes.
0: I'm an adjunct <laughs> professor, but officially a professor of the practice. Yep. So, so point is you're, you're teaching students entrepreneurship. You probably have to break through to why do you want to do this? Do you really want to do this?
1: Well, yes, you have to have that discussion, but then you also have the discussion of why would you want to do this? And, and, uh, you know, maybe I've been drinking too much of this Chapel Hill water, but my, over the years, my, I've started teaching the course of entrepreneurship more as a life philosophy than anything else because the actual nuts and bolts of starting a business um you know the the actual details of it as we know now are changing radically from year to year right so so anything that i would say hey this is what you do uh, it's going to be outdated by the time it gets out there but larger lessons uh whether you know your network you know uh when i was first garnering interest in top of the hill, I was putting in, um, uh, paper ads in the mail drops around all the campus mailboxes. And I personally single-handedly changed the rules about who could put what into mail drops. Now that's looks very different than doing a targeted email campaign, but it's the same thing. It's just different tools, right? So, so the principles are the same, the tools may change. Um, but the idea of the philosophy, right? Of well, why is it that you really want to do this? Um, and to me, I think that what ends up happening is most of the students in my class, which is through the business school, they've already signed on. You know, and if you don't know, dear listener, uh, at UNC you have to apply to become part of the Keenan Flagler Business School as an undergrad. And by far the most popular. And Jonah, please feel free to stop me here or correct me, but by far the two most popular tracks is you go into either finance or you go into, um, um Oh, come on. Um, not accounting, consulting, consulting. Thank you very much. And so it, it is a very well oiled machine cranking out these people that are going into those things where quite frankly, there is a lot of money to be made in terms of a base salary. But while having no intentions of doing this, what I have slowly done is garnered a bunch of speakers. And truly, I did not do this on purpose. But what you find is people that go out and actually get that gold ring, come out and get that number one uh, uh, consulting job, number one finance job on Wall Street, look around after three or four years and say, this sucks. And they need to find a new meaning in life. And so I have become painfully aware that my class is, is you know, filled with people that want to see the wild animal entrepreneurship in the cage before they leave the zoo that's the university, but not going to start a business, right? But my thought process is, is that I can lay the, the groundwork and the thought process so three, five, seven years down the road, they can say, you know, there is an alternative path I can get on. And, by the way, hopefully during those three, five, seven years, they are choosing job responsibilities that are filling in, you know, um, uh, tools and, and skills necessary for them to be successful. And they're hopefully, instead of running out and buying the same car that everybody else is buying or buying the same house everyone's buying, they are saving some of that money. So when they make that jump, they've got a little bit of seed capital. They've got a bunch of skill sets that was paid for by the richest companies in the world for them to learn and they can apply it to brand wines, bagels, for example. Right. Which is right. Dear listener, mutual friend, now it's brand wine, get a bagel. They're awesome. Yeah. Right. So, so I think that that's the key and that's the way I look at it. Um, and I think that's appropriate because the biggest challenge in entrepreneurship is having the right idea. So I had a dear friend call me, say, Hey, my, my brother wants to start a bar, on the beach that that is has been his goal for years and years and years wants to start start a bar at the beach and the first thing i said well why does he want to start a bar at the beach because it might be a lot cheaper for him to just buy a nice house at the beach build a nice bar in his backyard and invite some friends over right that that right so right i mean so the point is is that is that what you really want to do is run a bar at the beach or do you want to drink drinks at the beach get that straight and then if you really do want to you know run a bar at the beach well, then it's all about location. It's not like, you know, it's not like there's some book about here's the successful way to open a beach bar. Everything's going to be different. And uh, ultimately, I felt like I wasn't giving him a lot of good advice other than, you know, I think it's about creating community. That that the independent restaurateur bar owner is vanishing. And the thing that we have is uniqueness and quirkiness and the ability to create community that truly is part of our community. Uh whereas the chain restaurant, chain bar is is creating this faux thing, you know. I think about what a kick ass place Chipotle must have been in Denver, Colorado, when it was only the one store, right? You know. I don't think that necessarily translates to the Chipotle here on Franklin Street and you know, every time I feel like I want to get some E. coli, I run on down there and, and go. But right? but but the point is, is that what made Chipotle so special, I think, got watered down. And, and, and again, this is my own view of the world, but um, I think it's great. And I, I actually have a lot of respect for what these chain restaurants are doing. Maybe not Chipotle, but others. But one of the things we lose is it gets watered down to the lowest common denominator. And I'm not so sure that that's
0: what we want. As people. Yeah. One of the things that you just kind of brought up, too, is just. As you're going through this and you're, and you're teaching folks and you're, you're operating top of the hill, when you started the company, and I have to imagine this has to relate to your experience with the law school, you decided to do the partnership route and take on investors, right? And and it's funny because just from speaking about, uh, just really quick, the investment banker consultant who makes 100000 150000 you wouldn't believe, at my role in Midstreet, I basically handle the buyer inquiries for businesses that we sell. The number one buyer profile we get, what do you think it is? It's probably that it's consulting that finance guy. 10 years in and realized, yep. listen, this is just not for me. And they're ready to take the leap with family, you know, with their wife, yes. with their kid, even all that, they still want to take the leap. So it's just, it just reinforces your point. You yeah. know, So many of those folks are dying to make a change. And unfortunately, a lot of them don't seem to be cut out for the risk at that stage in their life. So they say they want to do it, they kind of tell you a lot of sweet nothings, and then it really comes down to writing the check and making the decision they can't do it because they have so many of these things holding them back. So this is why like for me it's so important to get the word out that small business ownership is an option for you if it's your if it's if it's a career path you want to take earlier on in your life. You don't have to wait until you're 10 years older with a whole family set up and you have to, you know, really think about the risk in a different way. You could be, you know, sort of a single young guy or gal, you know, when you're younger in your career and start taking these risks while you can take the risks.
1: That's right. And 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 the paradox is it's hard to have the good idea when you're young, right? So the way out is when you start on this lucrative path, realize you know what? I may want to take a different path. And so really pay yourself first so that when you're seven years down the road, you know, and, and again, I mean, this is my personal experience. But as I went and clerked with law firms around the state, it felt very Stepford Wivesy to me, right? Oh well, this is where the this is the neighborhood where the partners live, and this is the neighborhood where the associates live, and this is the cars we drive. I mean, like like to the point where I thought people were maybe messing with me, right? And uh, uh, I just realized, you know, I uh, that's not me. Although I probably drive the same cars and all that stuff. I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, this is not an indictment of anything other than I just wasn't cut to be that cookie cutter. But the problem with that, the real point I'm making here though is, is that if you go and do this and you buy into the idea that, well, I can't live in an apartment, I got to buy my starter house or whatever. And you know what? My Honda beater is not good enough. I got to buy the new whatever well you're going to leverage yourself out and so you're 10 years into it you're making a lot of money but you're also leveraged because you're living above your means so if you stay within your means pay yourself first well then you'll be ready to go financially and frankly attitudinally when it comes time to I make that jump because it really is a risk but that's the other question is well what risk is it right what risk are you really taking and when you know i've got Uh, um, a speaker and a good friend of mine Will Brawley who started ScheduleFly right and so Will's one of these classic stories Will actually helped take a company public okay and he's like I'm never going to do that again," right and they started ScheduleFly they have five customers or excuse me five partners two employees Uh, they have never met except for once Wow and when they met all together they met for 20 minutes and they agreed they would never meet again and They do online scheduling for independent restaurants and they've had to turn down very lucrative contracts from like California Pizza Kitchen and large things because they know how to do independent restaurants. And once you get the chain restaurants, the needs are different. And he realized that if I start creating a subsidiary for the chain restaurants then i have to grow and have people and then i have to, i'm slave to that contract right and so i love the the way that he has kept his focus and made it that he's truly in charge but what he talks about when we talks about risk is he talks about you know the turkey at the farm right and so the life of a normal turkey to the turkey seems pretty good. Every day the farmer comes, feeds him some food, and you know he's just getting bigger and fatter and everything's great. And then one day he's, the turkey's there waiting to get his food and the guy comes in and chops his head off, right? That's that's his analogy for working for corporate America, which, you know, again, I, I don't harbor any resentment towards large corporations. But and, and guess what? You know, I had to lay off 142 out of 150 people when COVID hit. I mean, it, it, that's the nature of the job. The point is, is that, no one's laying me off, right? I mean, here here's the advantage of this. Uh, there are some some disadvantages, which is you. The buck has to stop with you. You have to take responsibility. You are probably going to have people that are very angry at you. You're you know you're going to have to navigate unknown waters and hazards, and you're going to do all of that kind of stuff. But you will also, if you have the courage to do so, you can live and die by your own decisions. And um, you know, if you haven't seen it ever that the um, man in the arena speech by teddy roosevelt right which is you know the idea that uh, uh you know if i find success great but if i lose at least i don't stand with the people that never knew the thrill of trying right and and, and that's the kind of the way i look at it
0: yeah yeah that's that's awesome man it's like uh, kind of unrelated but, but in jujitsu it's basically like you have this thing that happens you learn techniques in class and then afterwards you spar and you like practice the techniques a common problem for new people to do myself included in this bucket is you try to just win and you don't throw out the new techniques you, you keep using the old techniques that you learned earlier because you're more comfortable with them but if you never do the new ones and just try it even if it might you know not work out you're never gonna learn it and so it's kind of like an analogous real, I feel like jujitsu has a lot of relations I'm sure golf does too we were talking about yeah we're talking about golf.
1: Golf. Well, all these things and, and, and you know that's one of the things I say. why do we do these things because we actually actually are learning lessons from him who was a I don't think it was Mike Tyson that said it but one famous boxer said you know all the good plans you know fight get put the rest when you get hit in the face yeah. Right? Yeah. You know? yeah.
0: <laughs> so one thing that's interesting that um my buddy uh, Jeff Jr. and I talk about all the time because we're kind of planning out the future and thinking about what we want to do long term. This concept of taking on investment—you don't have to take on outside investment. You could, you know, save up cash in whatever field you're doing, and 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 you know, potentially buy a business, using an SBA lender, and just do it your, all yourself, or even just all outright start a business yourself. You decided to take on investment and have partners. Walk me through, I guess, just. The decision process, but also, you know, at, at your age right now, are there certain stresses that come along with that that maybe people don't think about? Because, you know, you can start with having, and in real estate, I think about it like a syndication or, or whatever, junior, junior, um, uh, a JV sort of a situation, right? Where you have investors and, and you're kind of, you are responsible for the deal and the buck stocks with you and they're kind of managing and, and re- you're reporting to them. So just I guess just talk about that.
1: Well, yeah. So, you know, I think the advantage of using a mix of loans and investors is that you're deleveraging. Right? Now it depends on the deal you make with the investors, but but you know, the loan money in some ways may be cheaper than the investor money, but that loan money is a monster that needs to be fed every month, right? So if you go all loan, you're gonna have less of a uh, runway maybe than you would if you bring in partners. So I think that finding the right balance. But clearly having partners brings up issues And, you know, you need to make sure that you've got good relationships with your partners and a clear understanding of what it is that you're trying to achieve and what the deal is. And even so, you know, you're going to have falling outs. There's going to be tensions. Unfortunately, you know, um, you know businesses don't work out necessarily sometimes the way you want them to, or maybe they do like in top of the Hills case, they work out really well for a long time and then they go through some tough years and then, you know, whatever. Right. So, so it brings up a lot of challenges and a lot of time and effort in terms of, uh, uh, uh managing those investor relationships. But, uh, uh, I think there can also be a lot of value. And, and so I think the thoughtful picking of the investors and, and the only, um, you know, the only regrets I've ever had from a investor perspective is the investors that I took that I didn't know very well, but I needed the money. Right. And, uh, but you know, I needed the money, so I don't, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. But I think that that's a challenge. Um, and if you can do it, if you can do it by debt only, well then obviously, um, it is, um, advantageous in the way that nothing will be stopping your way. But then here's the caveat with that. You know, so we, we mentioned that we had the distillery. And so when I started the restaurant brewery, nobody thought I could do it. And like I said, I gave my pitch 378 times. I, I actually think maybe it's 384, but you get the idea, right? And, and so the advantage of that was very long, you know, two-year process to raise the money, all of that. But I got a lot of good, a lot of bad, but I got a lot of good feedback on the business plan got a lot of people trying to tear it apart because nobody believed that that I could possibly know what the hell I was doing with no experience contrast that to my experience of raising money for the distillery I write the business plan and I put first thing is this is a completely different business than the restaurant and brewery it's different channels it's different products it's it's all these things and I don't know anything about this right well I sent out, I think 10 prospectuses, all 10 said, yes, I'm in. I said, well, did you read the prospectus? And they're like, no. Right. And I got no feedback. And I think that ultimately in retrospect, I wish that I'd gotten people more pushback from people. Was it because of the previous success? That That's they right. They're, you know, people are just like, well, you know what you're doing. Right. And, and so what I would say to you as the successful founder is, you know, you learn a lot more from your failures than you do your successes. And, and, and the problem is, is that if your first one or two things is a success, you start thinking, at least I started thinking that, you know, well, I'm the bomb. Right. And, and, uh, uh, the reality is is that nobody is. And, you know, you even look at these people that we adulate now and adore and, you know, Jeff Bezos sh- should be thanking his lucky stars. He figured out he could sell excess computing power. And and if you and I did the stuff that Elon Musk does, we'd be thrown in jail by the SEC, right? I mean, like there are just some things that you look at and you say, hmm, okay. So I found that unintentionally I really sharpened my saw by having to make it so hard to raise the money. And I think that that's one of the interesting things is that, that people that find it easy to raise money, uh, I typically find that – their businesses are not as likely to succeed or the track record of those businesses because they haven't been put through the ringer. And so going through the ringer, I think, is a good thing.
0: This show is brought to you by Midstreet Mergers and Acquisitions, a business intermediary based out of Raleigh, North Carolina, that specializes in selling businesses generating $1 to $25 million in revenue throughout the Southeast. If you own a business and are considering an exit, check out their website and contact them at midstreet.com. That's M-I-D street.com. Now back to the show. And what do you look for in a, in a potential partner or an investor? I mean, differentiated skill sets, a person who's a little bit more analytical, maybe someone who's more networked in the industry. What are you looking for?
1: Well, it depends on what you need or want in a partnership. I mean, do you want an active partner? Um you know, or do you want the money? Um, how did you set yours up? Very complicatedly. Um, but uh it, like I said, we were an LLC and um, uh, I had uh, uh, what I called class B, which is sweat equity guys. And then we had class A folks, which are the cash folks. And then we had a um, council comprised of both class A and class B that had to oversee you know, major decisions. People in the class B side started going by the wayside, not being involved anymore. We had, you know, we're online. We had deaths on the A side. And it sort of devolved into, you know, I was the only person running the thing from day to day. Here's what I've learned if you are successful, then no one cares, right? And they don't want to be involved. Just send me the check, rock and roll. If you are not successful, then it becomes, you know, you start getting folks that are like, hey, go, hey what's going on? Um, and, and I've had both. And, um, um, my advice is be successful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> great advice. Great advice. So you would, would you consider yourself a restaurateur? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, um,
1: a lot of things like, like, like I don't consider myself a restaurateur, but obviously I am. Uh, and I think the reason why I don't consider myself a restaurateur is, you know, I didn't grow up in a restaurant. My first job in college wasn't doing this kind of stuff. You know, I've never worked in the trenches of the restaurant unless it was my own restaurant. Right. Um, so I don't really feel in my heart of hearts that I am a true restaurateur, but, uh, I've had enough people say that I am, that I have to convince myself that I am. Um, but I I just think that I'm a business person. I'm truly an entrepreneur. And I think that uh, that term gets thrown around and is defined in a lot of ways these days and frankly I think we have a very narrow definition of entrepreneurship when it comes to like national media Uh, and I'm not taking anything away from you know the unicorn entrepreneurship that goes on in Silicon Valley but the reality is I feel like um, I am an entrepreneur of the old school which is you know the 1 million, 5 million dollar, 10 million dollar business that is frankly the fabric of our communities. And, and, you know, I, my son was playing the little league for the first year this year. And, you know, you look out at the signs that line the, you know, uh, home run fence or whatever we call it, you know, there's no Amazon signs and all that stuff. It's, you know, Bill's garage and, and it's whatever. And, and you realize that, that that's what makes community. And I don't want to take anything away from people that have achieved scale. But what we need to realize is, is that by focusing only on those folks, uh, we're taking away from what I think is an important part of America, which is you know, the 70 percent of businesses that are not that and that employ local people and, and uh, you know, can make an impact in a way that a national organization can't. You know, we're, we're the ones that just go, oh, well, I got an extra basketball hoop. And exactly. you just show up with a ladder and you put it up.
0: Exactly. Right.
1: And and to me, that's where I want to live. And a big reason why I stayed in Chapel Hill. I love this little town.
0: You know? Yeah. And and this is what people don't realize is like, they're going to, the big corporations are going to make decisions financially. They've got a board of directors or shareholders to answer to. And, you know, a small business can, can make decisions a little bit differently. That's right. And, and, and again, I want to make it clear. I got, I got no,
1: it, I'm not criticizing scale but I think you summed it up perfectly that that all of this angst and everything that in the business school you know people and profits and all this all this stuff you know frankly that is for the huge companies because every local company hey they're making donations to the school why because their kid goes there right I mean you know it's funny to me because in Chapel Hill we have an anti-business bias among a lot of the people that live here and, and they act like these small, like Mediterranean Deli and IP3 and Top of the Hill or some international coalition that are going to deprive us of, you know, clean water. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We drink the water too, right? Um, and so it is interesting to me. And I do think though that, that one of the things that I've learned, and, and, and my class from West Point's been incredibly successful, and we got lots of generals, and, and, and man, my class is tight, and my classmates have done some amazing things. But a lot of them have expressed to me, like my, my roommate, you know, worked for Elon Musk, worked for Apple, and all that, and and has made lots of money. But he says that I'm the lucky guy. He feels like a big cog in the machine, and and you know, I'm not right. And so you know, the grass is always greener. Um, but if the idea, if you're if you're doing a small business thing because you feel like you're going to coin it, I'm you know, hopefully that I mean, hey knock it out I hope it happens but I think and this is what COVID has taught me too you know we really got to think about the journey we got to really think about what's happening on a day-to-day basis and and I tell my entrepreneurship kids there's two types of capital time and money and you need to be asking yourself every day how am I spending that and what is my goal right and uh, I think that's probably a pretty good way to live
0: You can access previous episodes of Owner Operated and sign up for my free weekly newsletter where I summarize topics from each episode and send them straight to your inbox at jonapalone.com in the show notes. That's jonapalone.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more people find Owner Operated. Back to the episode. And, And running the business on a day-to-day basis, you know, how would you describe your role and how do you create, I mean, I've been to Tapo a lot and it's, it's a very smooth operation and you're not always in there day-to-day. I don't always see you there. Right. So how do you manage from a higher level and you must have, you know, a general manager in place. And so how, how did you set all that up and how did you find the right people for the right roles? Well, you're exactly
1: right. One of the great disappointments or, or, negative aspects of starting the distillery uh was it took me away from a day-to-day role at a restaurant now that's what I signed up for and that's what I wanted to do but but what I've come to learn is I miss the sense of camaraderie and community I get within my own team by being part of that team if that makes sense um and uh you know but it was set up to allow us to try to go out and create other things um covid has changed that and we are in a contracting mode and i'm excited about the idea of being a little bit more involved where i'm at but i think there is that difference i think as an entrepreneur you've got to always be thinking about working on the business not in the business and while there are times where you might have to step in and work in the business if that's happening a lot then i think you're doing something that you you can be be having an issue um Although you know, there's especially on the restaurant side, you can work in the business, but you got to make sure that you understand the difference between on and in. Um, and it's working in the business that that brings us this day-to-day satisfaction that 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 we really like, right? Uh, and finding good people. I mean, the great thing about the restaurant business is, is you know, people talk about turnover being a negative thing, and 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 surely it is. But one of the advantages is it's a never-ending job interview right and so you can start seeing quality people and you can start you know so one of my bosses was ross perot and i worked for him in the campaign you know and he says eagles don't flock you got to find them one at a time and that's exactly right so you start plucking you know plucking you start plucking the the eagles out from the people that you see and convince them to stay and and you know the best eagle i ever plucked out was guy murphy who was a bartender and became an assistant bartender and the bar manager and then I realized that, that he, uh, you know, was getting serious about a girl that he met at Top of the Hill. And I was like, you know, probably she's not going to be excited about you working every night. So maybe we can make it so you're the, you're the manager and, you know, all of that stuff. So uh, I think that building that team and, and, um, and then you ask me what my day-to-day job is, you know, I look at it as my day-to-day job is to make sure that everybody works for me, has what they need to do the job. That's it. That, that's my whole job. Uh, they they know how to run the restaurant better than i do i just need to make sure that they get the resources whether that's people or equipment or you know money
0: or whatever it is they need to make sure that we do it right got it this has been awesome i don't want to i don't want to keep you too long here so we're going to wrap up and do the kind of the final questions or the rapid fire question oh geez <laughs> okay I, sh- I really should get a sound effect for that by the way if you're listening to the podcast we are s- surrounding a barrel and we had to move it slightly. Talk about that just for a second, give it a little. Well, feel. Yeah, so it's a
1: dry barrel, and so barrels are made out of wood, and wood, the where a barrel gets a lot of strength is is whatever liquid is inside the barrel will expand the wood staves that make the barrel. And so this is a dry barrel, and so the barrel gets a little bit loose because the wood staves are dry. Yeah, yeah.
0: I had no idea. <laughs> there you go. Um, okay, so, so first question, um, any, you seem to have a lot of philosophies on life and I feel like we could sit here and talk for four hours and it'd be great. But what are some of the philosophies of business that you live by? Are there say, are there sayings that you have? You seem to have some sayings from, you know, West Point or you know, just even to, in the to, you know, topo with the, with the honesty, integrity thing. What are some of the things you live by on a day to day basis?
1: You know, I was thinking about this cause my nephew just graduated from high school and I did a poor job of being able to pull anything together. But I think it's because maybe it's, in my fabric, so so. First of all, don't lie, cheat, or steal, and and don't tolerate those who do. And that's the that's the hard part. Okay, that's the trick is surround yourself with people who are good people, right? One bad apple does spoil the whole bunch. Thank you, Michael Jackson. Um, so you know, th- I think that that's key. Um, I think being a c- servant leader, right, and showing people that you would never ask them to do something you wouldn't do yourself and that you're putting them first. Um, I think the other thing is, I always try to convince everybody that, you know, especially in the restaurant and people that are in the restaurant world will know this, there are so many different competing priorities within a team, like, like something that, that may seem from the outside, like it's an absolute winner. Uh, to somebody inside the restaurant may not seem that way, right? Like, oh, okay, we're hiring waiters because we've got more business. Well, the existing waiters are like, man, that's going to cut into my tips, right? I mean, there's always this balance of things. And so the only way that I have found to navigate the competing interests that everybody has, and I'm sure this is true for other businesses as well, I think the way you got to look at it is you got to get everybody to realize they have to put the business first. Take care of the goose that's laying the golden egg And then it'll be good for everybody. And it can't be a quid pro quo. It's got to be this thing where, okay, I'm going to really do it. And then obviously this is where that trust factor comes in because you can't convince people to do that. You know, I remember, and this is a true story, a guy that ran a restaurant diagonal from top of the hill uh, was running an Italian restaurant, and this was back in the late 90s, and he got all of his uh, uh, weight team together and said, listen, uh, from now on, uh, we're not going to let you, or we're not, we're not, we're, you're only working for tips. We're not going to pay you a base thing, which is against the law, but that's what he goes, you know, I can't afford you. And, and the problem with that was, was he drove up for that meeting in his brand new, um, oh, gosh, I was in the army. I can't remember, a Humvee. So see, so he drove up in a brand new $100,000 car and told the people, Hey, I can't pay you the two thirteen an hour work is what well, right? That kind of disconnect doesn't work, right? I think another thing that I we deal with a lot of young people, but I think that also is a factor for me, I always think about Aristotle. And Aristotle said, you know, we are what we do repeatedly. Excellence then is not an act, it's a habit. And I think that that's something to really chew on, that that idea of it doesn't matter what we do, we're always going to try to do it as well as we can. Um, and I think that that's the thing that you can develop if you get the reputation of being a utility infielder and doing anything. I I think one of the things that prevents us from, from society and people achieving their ultimate best is we want to break everybody down into like, well, do you have that experience? And it's like, you know, what I really want is, do you have the ability to do things correctly and, and, and the drive to finish it? And experience is helpful, but sometimes experience can be harmful, right? So anyways, so that, that would be, I think, maybe okay. some of the things to think about. And I think that idea about that balance, you know, that that reward imbalance, and as you get older with the family and all that kind of stuff, I think that's true with the family too, right? So so I think what you need to be thinking is you got to be picking your times really hard. Like, like think about, okay, this is where I'm going to go overboard with the family, and this is where I'm going to go overboard with the business or whatever and then hopefully through all of that you can kind of make it work you mm-hmm. achieve balance in an imbalanced way exactly
0: yeah like there are periods of your life where you know family will be number one and there are periods where you know for me like right now work is number one that's right, right? i mean
1: work is your life and, and right so so go out there and work right don't play video games so unless that's your work yeah right?
0: <laughs> streamer right yeah um, exactly Okay, so any book recommendations that you that you like that, you know business related um, that helped you? You know, um,
1: I just became part of a men's book group, and I was shocked and happily surprised to find out that it really is a book group. They actually talk about the book, so it was exciting. But we decided this next thing instead of doing books, we were going to do podcasts. And and um, for whatever reason, I think because of stress, whatever. I've been reading a lot of just, you know, fluff, just like crime novels and stuff like that for the last two years or so because of stress, I think. But I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. And one of the podcasts I've been listening to is called The Happiness Lab. And it's a woman who studies happiness. And what's interesting is how counterintuitive what causes true happiness is. People think that, you know, money's going to cause happiness. And it turns out that that's not really the case and and all that. But So I recommend the entire... Podcast, but specifically, they did a series of of uh, wisdom of the ancients, and it broke down like the main tenets of Christianity and of Judaism and of Taoism, and 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 it was fascinating. and And frankly, after COVID, I am restructuring. The thing that really stuck with me was um, the discussion about Taoism, and I've heard this before, but didn't really understand it. And so it's, you know, we were like, Oh, the old ancient Chinese thing that says the value of the cup is this emptiness. And I've never really took in any time to figure out what the hell that meant. But the reality is, is why do you want a cup? Well, so it's empty. So you can put something in it. Right. And, what it means from a taoist philosophy uh it appears from this podcast and some reading i've done now (laughs) but but anyways i'm a podcast master but but the point is what it hit me was my organization was running at a hundred percent all the time we were always stuffing it as far as we could go and consequently we couldn't take the opportunity to to take a new challenge or to do even something fun everything just seemed like a burden and so I am actually moving the restaurant we're not going to go back to being seven days a week we're going to go six days a week and there's some real practical things in terms of we just don't have enough people to to do seven days a week and there's a lot of non-new-agey stuff I can justify that by but honestly I think the biggest benefit is going to be to give our organization a collective day off, which obviously works for Chick-fil-A, which obviously has worked for Judaism, which is the definition to me of keeping that cup 75% full because there's so many things that I think we could do at Top of the Hill Restaurant and Brewery and have more fun. Or when it was only Top of the Hill Restaurant and Brewery, there were things that we did that were a hell of a lot of fun that sort of morphed into this sort of like mandatory fun thing that we do now. And so I want to get back to where, you know, we have some fun with it. And, and I think in order to have fun, you you need to have space and time. And so anyways, Ah. good luck with that, everybody.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been great, Scott. I've I've got one more question for you. Um, so obviously, you know, I've talked, I've shared a little bit about my background and what I'm doing. Um, one question I always like to ask is just from what you know about me and kind of what I said, I'd like to own my own business in the future be successful. What advice do you have for someone in my shoes who would like to own their own business in the future and is sort of on that path, but you know, not a hundred percent sure about all of it because I can't be. Right? That's right.
1: Well, first of all, I think you're doing something really smart which is you're working in a position that allows you to see a bunch of businesses, right? So based on our conversation, I don't know, but my sense is, is you're seeing that while they may look different on the outside, the problems they face are remarkably similar, right? That that every business has the same kind of issues, it just has a different skin on it. So that I think is very insightful. That's something that 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 you should realize you have an advantage on because other people don't get it, which then brings us to the next thing, which is, and we talked about it, the on versus in. Okay. So if, if, if our hypothesis is that every business has the same problems, right? Uh, then the idea of being able to work on the business, it doesn't matter what business you're actually doing. Oh, you're a, you know, a painting company, you're a, you know, hydraulic, foundation company. You're a, you know, a a flying lesson company, right? All of these things are going to have the same problems. And if your role is going to be to work on it, then the great luxury is, is that, well, you get to choose what you want that business to be in because the skill sets to work on a business are not nearly as field specific, I think, as people think, right? There's Limits to that, and and you need to be smart and learn your field. Don't get me wrong, but so the point then becomes is well, because I hate this. People say, "Well, follow your passion." Okay, well, you know, uh, you know, but you have to develop that passion. It's like like, the weakness in that thing is is that the 19 year old or the 20 year old doesn't know what their passion is, right? Not really done anything, right? So, so now I would say to you, well, now figure out what your passion is. And and to be fair, people say, "Well, what's your passion?" Well. Weirdly, my passion isn't what I think people would think. And and I'm the first one to say, this is weird. Get it. But for whatever reason, I mean, when I came to UNC, I just came because they gave me a free three-day weekend in conjunction with a scholarship thing. I thought I was going to Yale. But I showed up and I fell in love with UNC in Franklin Street. I just fell in love with it. And my passion is this small town. And I you know, have come to realize that I had a Freudian moment that downtown Chapel Hill looked a lot like uptown Whittier where I grew up. And, and I didn't like the way that was all paved out and just homogenized. And, and so, so to me, it's, I love this town because it's not homogenous. Now, sometimes it's not homogenous in a bad way, but it's, it, you know, Chapel Hill's different than other places and, and uh, every place is different. Uh, it can be at least. And so the point is, that's my passion. And that idea of how the small business plays into that and the fact that it allows me to help define what this community is, that makes me happy. And I'm the first one to admit that's weird, right? Your passion may be just as weird, right? But if the hypothesis is you need skill sets to work on a business and then you're smart enough to figure out what you need to learn in the business, well, then Choose what you're going to have fun with, what you want to be around, right? Um, or, or, Or what is going to sustain you. Because the last piece of advice is if you do it for the money, ultimately you don't have passion for money. You have passion for what money can bring you. And consequently, money is not enough to sustain the business if that makes sense. I don't know if that's clear, right? But, but if you only want money then I'm assuming that means you want a boat and you want a this and you want to that. Well, so they can pay you as much money. If you don't have the time to run the boat or whatever, then what's the joy in that, right? And if you feel like you're working at the salt mine and you're only, just, you're doing this for money? Well, it's just not going to last very long. So that would be my thing. And, and by the way, I think you're on a great trajectory. I think I wish more people would do something like you're doing. And, For people that aren't in a position that Jonah's in you know if you're thinking you want to go do something like i told my buddy whose brother wanted to work in the beach bar hey why don't you take three months and go work in a beach bar right
0: see if that's what you really want to do right maybe it is
1: right but you know maybe it's not
0: it's it's like one of the unique things for me that i get to do is be in in the inner workings of like hundreds of different businesses, be able to see behind the scenes and actually see what it's like as a consumer. You really don't know. Like you, you go to a, um, a restaurant and you get to experience, you know, maybe you get to experience the service and the food, but the actual kitchen and the operations of the business and what, what all that's like, just for example, you have no idea. So all the personnel issues and
1: reporting requirements and licensing requirements and, and, you know, all of that stuff, right. All the accounting issues and, and all of these things. So, any event, the point is, um, I think that, that you're doing it the right way. And, and that's, what, by the way, one of the things I tell the kids that go off the consultancy. It's like, hey, you got a great opportunity. You can, you can really see a lot of different businesses there, too. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I appreciate it, man. Um, how can people best support you and, and Topo?
1: Well, I, I would like to expand it and just say, hey, you know, um, support your independent restaurant. Um, and, you know, recognize that, that we are still battling through a lot of challenges that are residual from COVID. So personnel and supply chains and all that stuff. So be kind and uh, you know, tip big and uh, all oh. that good stuff. Scott, <laughs> thank you, man. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it.
0: This episode of Owner Operated is sponsored by On Top's Roofing, a family-owned and operated business servicing the Triangle area of North Carolina since 1991. With a long-standing commitment to quality work and customer service, OnTops has grown to be recognized as one of the most respected roofing contractors in the triangle. They offer roofing work, window replacements, siding replacements, and gutter installation services. Check them out at OnTopsRoofing.com. That's OnTopsRoofing.com. Thank you for listening to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. Be sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter at jonapalone.com, where I share the takeaways from each episode and share any resources or tips I find valuable. And if you like the episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It really does help the show grow and send it to a friend that you think would benefit from it. Thanks so much.